Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Regrettably, we didn't make any arrests. Uh, uh, we made uh, numerous stops of uh, possible suspects. Uh, we found the people to be most cooperative. The black community uh, realizes the uh, seriousness of the situation and the need for, co- uh, for cooperating with the police authorities, and they have done so. But I have been informed that uh, he may have hinted or alluded to that this may be racially inspired, this street check looking for suspects involved with people who were murdering and who were attempting to uh, attempting to murder on the other hand if we are ever going to have a system of justice that works the need to get the layman the lay woman to come on in and tell us everything they know is important police say he was one of zebra's first victims Salim Arakat, an Arab grocer who owned this small shop near San Francisco's Civic Center. Arakat was alone in the store on a Sunday morning last November when Zebra swept in, tied him up, then took $1,300 from the till. Then, for no apparent reason, the Zebra murdered the grocery man, muffling the gun with a family blanket. We're checking uh, for suspicious men who have been reported to us. We're trying to uh, track down men who have been reported to us to find out their... uh their activities uh, the last several nights, especially the nights of the murders. This is the area where police found the young woman laying in a pool of blood. They don't know much about the killing except that sometime around 10 o'clock last night, the couple was walking down a street in the North Beach area, and they were abducted by three men at gunpoint, forced into a car and brought here. The woman's throat was cut. The man was hit several times over the head with what police describe as a large bladed object. He was left for dead, but he managed to walk back up to the roadway where he flagged down a motorist. Brought his gun, fired at me twice, and uh, shot me. Hello, and welcome to the Deathcast. I'm your host, best-selling author Ian Totten. I'd like to thank you for joining me as we prepare to take another look at 
the zebra killings, also known as the San Francisco Death Angels cult. As with last week, the news clips at the beginning of the show come from the San Francisco Bay Area TV archive maintained by the San Francisco State University, which begin located at diva.sfsu.edu and are used under fair usage laws. And before we get into it this week, as always, I have the normal show notes. If you'd like to follow me on social media, just search for The Death Cast or Ian Totten Author. If you enjoy the show but YouTube is more your thing, you can find me on YouTube at official underscore Ian Totten. All episodes are posted onto the YouTube page when they go live. If you'd like to sign up for the show's mailing list, you can go to CorpseCreekPublishing.com, click on the sign up button. While you're there, please consider making a donation to the show. Buy me a pack of cigarettes or a cup of coffee. If you really enjoy what I do and you want to help out further, you can go to tinyurl.com backslash DC Patreon for as little as $2 a month. You can become a Patreon member. There are episodes up there now that are exclusive to the Patreon feed. And lastly, please consider going to your favorite podcast app and leaving a five-star review. Those who actually take the time to write out a podcast review will have their review read on the air. All right, that's enough of that. Get yourself something to drink, find a nice comfy chair, sit back and relax. I've got my coffee, I've got my cigarettes. Let's go into the crypt. When we left off last week, 1973 had just ended with something of a flurry of activity from the as then unknown Death Angels cult. They had started out with random shootings, but as the year drew to a close, they really ramped up their activity, shooting multiple people in a day and, in fact, closing the window between the shootings down from every few weeks to a month to the point where there were being multiple days during a week where there would be shootings. And because of this, the San Francisco Police Department had secretly created a task force known as Operation Z, the Z standing for the channel that the police used to coordinate and discuss the case. This in turn led to the crimes being known as the Zebra Killings, which has taken on a further connotation as these were black-on-white crimes. Now, some sources state that the Operation Zebra did not officially begin until January 28th of 1974. That is incorrect, as the police department themselves have stated that they actually started the task force at the end of December, but did not make it public as they did not want to create a public panic. 
And it was only after the events of January 28, 1974, that they felt the need to reassure the public that the police were, in fact, taking these killings seriously and attempting to stop them. You've heard me mention the date twice now, uh, January 28th. You're probably wondering why that is. But January 28th is notable for a few reasons. There was a major fight between Muhammad Ali and Smoking Joe Frazier, but it also saw, to date, the most violent night of activity from the cult. On that night, 32-year-old Tanya, or Tana Smith, went for a walk down Divisadero Street when gunmen opened fire on her. Ten minutes later, 69-year-old Vincent Woolen was shot twice in the back while he hauled trash cans filled with items he was intending to repair and then sell in an effort to supplement his social security check. Unbeknownst to his assailants, Woolen was on his way home where friends and family were waiting to help him celebrate his birthday. An hour later, 87-year-old John Bambick was shot twice in the back, and he died immediately. 45-year-old Jane Holly was in a laundromat on Silver Avenue, removing clothing from a dryer when a lone gunman ran through the open door of the laundromat and shot her twice in the back. Holly had been planning on celebrating her anniversary that evening and obviously was unable to do so. Short time after this, 23-year-old Roxanne McMillan was shot while carrying items into her apartment. She ended up surviving this attack, although was paralyzed for life and was forced to use a wheelchair. Now, some sources state that those were the only five individuals who were shot on this date. However, other sources state that a sixth person ended up being shot. And I am including this individual just for the sake of completeness. 26-year-old Thomas Bates was a hitchhiker and he was on an on-ramp looking for a ride when a beat-up looking Cadillac pulled up alongside him and the occupants of the vehicle opened fire striking him once in the abdomen. Bates, too, survived his attack. Because of this one-day shooting spree, the police department really went into overdrive within San Francisco, which led to calls from the African-American population that they were targeting them. And I will get to that shortly. Police really weren't having much luck getting any information from the public despite pleas, and this led to, on April 1st, 19-year-old Thomas Rainwater of Santa Barbara and Linda Story, age 21, of Hayward, 
two Salvation Army cadets were leaving a training school located at 1450 Laguna Street, heading for a restaurant. Now, according to police, the pair briefly stopped to speak with a young black male before being fired upon. Rainwater was shot twice in the lower back and staggered on for an estimated 50 feet before collapsing to the sidewalk and dying, while Story was shot twice in the abdomen and once in the back. Story ended up surviving her attack. Police got numerous different descriptions of the individual that they were looking for, and eventually it came out that there was a possibility that two people were involved in the shooting. Again, as with the other crimes, more often than not, the assailants were described as young black males, oftentimes wearing what can best be described as a pimp hat and a mohair or camel hair jacket. On April 14th, there was another double attack at Hayes and Fillmore Streets. This was a bus stop where 15-year-old Terry White, who was on his way home, and a hitchhiker by the name of Ward Anderson, who was aged 18. Now, according to White, a black male, approximate age 30, with a beard and gold tooth, approached him while he was waiting for the bus to arrive and opened fire, stating that the man drew a gun and fired twice, striking White in the chest and the abdomen, whereas Anderson was hit twice in the abdomen should also be noted concerning this particular attack. Some sources state that the new the two were briefly acquainted from a local hospital, while others have it that they did not really know each other at all and in fact just met while they were standing there waiting at the bus stop. After shooting the pair, the gunman fled north on Fillmore Street while the two young men would eventually survive the attack. As with the other crimes, the police had very little to go on. They had evidence that a 32 caliber handgun had been used, that a black male had committed the crime, but again, they weren't getting any help from the public beyond what witnesses were stating that they saw. So the police began to implore the public, specifically the African-American community, to give them information. They felt that someone had to know something. But as of yet, the public either was unwilling to or unable to give them any information. This led to another shooting that really caused quite a bit of controversy in the city of San Francisco. On April 16, 1974, a 23-year-old named Nelson Shields IV, who had only been in the city for roughly two weeks, was making room inside of a friend's car for a rug that he had just purchased on 
Verona Street in the Merced Heights district when a gunman approached him from behind and opened fire, hitting him three times in the back. Nelson died clutching a lacrosse stick. This is important as some reports state that he may have actually seen his assailant approaching and had grabbed the lacrosse stick as a way to defend himself. Unfortunately, though, we'll never know for certain in this regard. According to his sister, quote, I've read about these shootings in the papers, but it's always something that happens to somebody else. This killing kicked off something in the zebra killings investigation that it took the San Francisco Police Department decades to live down. On April 17th of 1974, the police instituted a stop and search program which basically meant that officers assigned to the Operation Zebra were to go to designated areas within San Francisco with large African-American communities and begin a stop and search of these individuals, provided that they met certain criteria. They had to be mostly black males, and fit the description of the assailants seen at the various crime scenes. These officers were outfitted with copies of the sketches that had been made of the suspects. They were also given a questionnaire that they were to read off to these individuals that they were stopping, and they were to indicate whether or not this individual passed their stop and search or if more questioning was needed from these people they would take down their name age where they lived occupation that type of thing and if they passed their initial screening they were given a card that they could present to law enforcement should they be stopped again and this immediately blew up in the police department's face with people charging that they were being unfairly targeted by the police department, that it was racial profiling, although back at this time that term did not exist. While the public is outraged by this, the mayor of San Francisco, the chief of police, the commissioner, are holding press conferences stating that they don't see anything wrong with it and that they know somebody within these communities knows who is responsible for these crimes or knows something and that this is the only way that they feel that they can get this information. You gotta remember this was a very turbulent time in American history, particularly in San Francisco where the crime rate had skyrocketed so, not only were members of the general public complaining about this, you had organizations like the Black Panther Party complaining, as well as the SLA, which was the Simonese Liberation Army, who are most famous for having kidnapped and brainwashed Patty Hearst, who called Operation Zebra an attempt by the San Francisco Police Department to entrap members of the SLA.
this led to protests throughout San Francisco, with eventually the commissioner and mayor deciding that they needed to put black officers on the Operation Zebra task force in an attempt to assuage the public's outrage. While some people were questioning the constitutional merits of this particular step, white supremacist groups came out in support of it, even going so far as to appear at the Hall of Justice during a protest where they offered to aid the police in their search for the killers. Obviously, this further inflamed the situation. This would lead the NAACP and the American Civil Liberties Union to launch a lawsuit against the police department and the city of San Francisco, which would lead to a federal judge finding that the stop and searches being conducted by the police department were unconstitutional, and this was fairly quickly. Uh, the police were initially prevented from doing this on April 26th. The injunction also prohibits police from using interrogation cards for any purpose and connected with the zebra investigation. Police Captain Charles Barca said Operation Zebra would continue within the constitutional limits described in the court order. There will be no lessening of our efforts to apprehend the killer or killers. And around this same time, the mayor of San Francisco compared what they were doing to the interrogations that had taken place during the height of the Zodiac murders. Despite this, though, the federal judge's ruling was upheld. One thing that had been taking place during the investigation is that the city had been offering various sums to anyone who came forward with information that led to the arrest and conviction of those responsible for the zebra killings. As with any case, you get a number of crackpots coming forward claiming to have information. Leads that police have to go and run down to the end in order to ensure that, you know, there is nothing there. But nothing that was really helping them solve this string of murders. On April 28th of 1974, all of that changed, however, when the mayor, who was out of the area at the time, was informed that a witness had come forward and that this witness was willing to cooperate, provided he was given an audience with the mayor. Police must have taken this man's information seriously as the mayor flew back and canceled numerous political meetings in order to meet with this individual. However, the general public did not know at the time that this meeting was taking place. So what happened? An individual by the name of Anthony Harris 
recognized himself in one of the police sketches. And for whatever reason, he decided that, you know, I need to contact the police and let them know that I have information about these crimes. So Harris contacts the Zebra Task Force hotline and tells them this and says, I'm, look, I'm willing to come forward and talk to you, but I want immunity from prosecution if I do so. But he also wanted police protection from retaliation as well as the reward money. And what Harris told police is that there was a nationwide sub-organization operating within the Nation of Islam who referred to themselves as the Death Angels and that their stated purpose was to kill as many white people as possible and that in order to actually become a member of these Death Angels you had to kill a certain number of white people there was a specific amount of males that were needed to be killed, women and children, that would get the killer his wings, which I described in the first episode was they would take a picture of you and basically superimpose these wings at your neck and put you on a large board which was displayed at the, their secret meetings to let all others within this organization know that they were a member and that they had done their job and committed these crimes. Also, according to Harris, however, the crimes that had plagued San Francisco were not the only murders that the Death Angels were responsible for. These were just the ones that the police were aware of. And he provided police with the names, addresses, occupations, etc., etc., of numerous individuals who were involved in these shootings in San Francisco, you might be scratching your head and wondering how Harris knew all of this information. Well, according to Harris, he was at the scene of every one of these murders, but he did not take part in any of them, which, my personal opinion, that seems kind of dubious. You would think that an organization such as this, if they're having someone go with them to commit these crimes, they would more likely than not expect the individual to participate in them. In any event, Harris ended up speaking with the mayor and other investigators for at least 10 hours. The police created a, another task force made up of 28 black officers who were assigned to keep the suspects that Harris had named under 24-hour surveillance. While the police are keeping these individuals under surveillance, the police chief accidentally let slip that they had individuals who they were looking into who were under police surveillance. Uh, the media really didn't pick up on that little snafu on the police chief's part. Harris was placed into a hotel room where he was kept under guard. 
And it shows you exactly where Harris's loyalties lie, as it were. While he's being held in this hotel, a lawyer actually approached the police department on behalf of Harris, seeking the $30,000 reward. A judge ended up issuing search warrants for seven individuals, one of which was at a black self-help center where some of the suspects worked, as well as at a moving company and in apartments. So on May 1st, the police sprung into action raiding these areas with one witness who saw one of the raids being conducted stating that the police had shown up not in their typical dope house raid fashion, but instead wearing bulletproof armor and carrying shotguns, telling residents to get down out of line of sight as they proceeded to kick in doors and take those inside into custody before performing searches on the areas that the suspects were taken into custody at. Now, at the self-help center slash moving company, police found a number of items of interest, including rope, bows and arrows, a sickle, machete, wire, plastic bags, knives, hatchets, hand saws, and spears. Yes, all of these items are of interest. However, none of those items could be linked to any of the crimes. The day of the raids, May 1st, Mayor Aliado gave a statement stating, The police have arrested several suspects in connection with the zebra killings. At this stage of the proceedings, all of these suspects are entitled in the presumption that they are innocent, and the police and I are entitled to the opinion that the ringleaders who perpetrated the wave of terror in San Francisco are behind bars. The investigation will continue until we are satisfied that we have rounded up all of the members of this group and have ensured the fact that new members will not take their place. I am confident that the trial judges have ample power to protect the suspects from the publicity which the zebra slayings have generated. I am also of the opinion that this community is entitled to know the nature of the terrorist organization responsible for the received rash of crimes. The San Francisco Police Department, under the leadership of Chief Donald Scott, have pierced the veil of a vicious ring of murderers called Death Angels. The local group is a vision of a larger organization dedicated to the murder and mutilation of whites and dissident blacks. The pattern of killings by random street shootings or hacking to death with machete, cleaver, or knife. Decapitation or other forms of mayhem bring special credit from the organization for the killers. Hitchhikers are a particular prey. Death Angels, a kind of reverse Ku Klux Klan, is based on the muddled aberrations clearly outside the mainstream of Islamic religion. In my opinion, it represents as much a potential threat to blacks as to whites. Members are usually characterized by trim, neat appearance and purported to live by a puritanical code of moral conduct. They are fanatical believers in black separatism. 
the training of young boys 14 years of age and over in what they call martial arts is a practice of this group. It consists of teaching manual methods and techniques of killing or incapacitating. Our intelligence indicates that the national leader of this organization is apparently located outside of California and that he determines level of promotion in the local divisions. The Death Angels, who use wings as an insignia, literally earn their promotion upon presentation of proof of the number and nature of the murders committed. Nearly 80 California murderous assaults, principally in Los Angeles, San Francisco, Alameda, and Sacramento counties between September of 1970 to date have been characterized by the Death Angel pattern of operations, i.e. unprovoked attacks involving random shootings of whites in the streets or mutilation by heavy-bladed weapons committed by neatly dressed young black men. An examination of the specific facts and the attached partial list of victims amply supports the inference on courtroom evidence that the similarity of pattern is better explained by concert of action than by coincidence. A concerted drive by local, state, and national law enforcement agencies is desperately needed to shatter this organization. Otherwise, the arrest of present perpetrators will result in their replacement by other death angels. The jails are favorite places of recruitment, with job opportunities upon release as one of the inducements. Investigation by local police, the FBI, and grand juries, preferably coordinated by the ter Attorney General of California, is, in my opinion, an absolute imperative. This investigation must be carried on by skilled, professional, dispassionate police work, avoiding emotional appeals and hysterical speculation. While it must be vigorously and re relentless, it must stay within constitutional limitations. The public is urged to cooperate with police authorities and to come forward with information with the assurance that all the law permits by way of reward of leniency will be recommended in appropriate cases in exchange for valuable information. Special care must be taken by public officials and the police to prevent hate groups from converting a criminal investigation into a racial struggle. The inescapable fact of the matter is that most mass murderers of recent years, Manson, the Santa Cruz murderers, Corona, the Zodiac, have been white. Murder knows no cover and must be fought without aggravating sensitive racial tensions. For that reason, numerous blacks and whites with unquestioned credentials in the black community must participate in these law enforcement efforts. However, it should be clear that a constitutional assault on a murderous society of brutal killers cannot be diminished because its members are black, any more than if they were white. Murder is murder, and no community will endure that approaches the struggle for effective law enforcement with anything less than rugged determination to white, wipe out organized lawlessness. A grand jury ended up being convened on May 6, 1974. For those who are confused as to what actually a grand jury is, basically it's a step that's taken before a trial wherein they will impanel X amount of people to hear the evidence that is going to be presented at a case 
to decide whether or not they believe the state has a strong enough case to move forward with. And they can find either that they have enough evidence to move forward, which could be for any type of crime, from murder to rape. If you've listened to the Patreon episode on Roman Polanski, you'll learn that they convened a special grand jury to hear the evidence that the state had in regards to his rape case. In the zebra killings, they were working, looking at whether or not there was enough evidence, be it circumstantial or directly linking the suspects to these crimes to move forward with first-degree murder charges. And the reason that they do this is they don't want to get into court only for the defense to be able to poke holes in the prosecution's case and disprove the evidence that is being presented to the jury. Much like the stop and seize policy of the Z Operation Zebra, the grand jury hearings were not without their controversy. The, one of the judges presiding over it issued a gag order as well as an order of protection for the witnesses to ensure that their identities would not be disseminated to the public and possibly to members of the Death Angels cult who could then go and seek retaliation. We've got that going on while protesters started arriving during the second week of the grand jury hearings, claiming that the San Francisco Police Department had terrorized black individuals and that they needed to destroy the field interrogation cards that they had taken. One thing that was found during the grand jury hearings is that the police actually had questioned some of the suspects numerous times, including at one point when one of the suspects was stopped while driving a white van. was also noted that two of the suspects had interfered with a police officer who was conducting a traffic stop on December 23rd, although no citations were given to the men, and a few hours later two more zebra murders were committed. It was also found during these hearings that the group had shifted their modus operandi during the course of their murder spree by going back to using machetes. At least one victim, an unidentified homeless man, was, is known to have been abducted and chopped to bits with machetes before being dumped in the San Francisco Bay. And at some point after this abduction and murder, the zebra killers went back to using the 32 caliber gun. And we're talking about all of this, but who are the individuals who were arrested? I haven't touched on any of that yet. One of them was Manuel Leonard Moore, who was 29 at the time of his arrest. He was born in Southern California. And like the majority of the individuals who were arrested for the zebra killings, had been in trouble with the police at various points throughout his life. 
Next was Larry Craig Green, who is 22. Jesse Lee Cooks, who, if you'll remember from last episode, was already in prison for a murder that he had committed. J.C.X. Simmons, who was 29 at the time of his arrest. Leroy Doctor, who was 35, and we talked about him in the last episode. He was also caught after committing one of the crimes. Implicated in the crimes but never convicted was Thomas Maney, who was 31 years old, Dwight Stallings, who was 28, Edgar Burton, who was 22, Clarence Jamerson, who was 27, Edward, L Edward Land. I say implicated because Harris and others stated that these individuals had either participated in the crimes or given aid to the perpetrators of them. However, none of them were ever tried for their involvement. Moore and Simon were indicted on two counts of murder and assault with a deadly weapon on May 16, 1974, with Moore being charged with two additional accounts of assault with an additional weapon, while Green and Kirk Cooks were indicted on one count each of murder, two counts of kidnapping, two counts of robbery, robbery and one of assault with a deadly weapon, bail was set for each individual at $300,000. On May 29th of 1974, the suspects pleaded innocent to the charges of murder, with a trial date of July 8th, 1974 being set. As with most cases, this trial date was postponed numerous times, and during the course of the postponements, on February 21st of 1975, a man by the name of Clinton White, who was an attorney for Green, Moore, and Simon, contacted the court and told him that Harris had mailed him two letters, during which he stated that the police had threatened to revoke his parole on a prior burglary conviction unless he agreed to testify for the state. This led to White and Roger Perucci, who was the attorney for Cooks, to tape an interview with Harris during which he said that he was recanting his confession. During this taped interview, Harris also stated that police had pressured him into admitting to committing one of the murders, which he claimed to not have had participated in, nor had he had any prior knowledge of this particular murder prior to going in and being interrogated by police. This is why I stated earlier that Harris said he never participated in any of the murders because that bit of information wasn't known to the general public up until the time when the grand jury held their four-week trial. It came out during that, and then, again, files were sealed, things were withheld from the public. Now we've got this guy Harris saying, hey, the police pressured me into implicating all my friends here, but they also pushed me to say that I had taken part in one of the murders. I didn't do any of that. 
On February 24th, 1975, the four men charged with the murders, as well as the other four who were implicated as having participated in some form or fashion, filed a $14 million lawsuit against the mayor of San Francisco and the San Francisco Police Department, claiming that they had been falsely arrested and suffered from, quote, fright, shame, humiliation, embarrassment, and worried. Obviously, this lawsuit went nowhere and was a tactic on the part of the defense team and the people implicated in these crimes to cast doubt on the state's case against them. The trial eventually ended up starting on March 3rd of 1975. During that first day, 48 potential jurors were dismissed due to hardships that they were facing, while defense attorney Clinton White requested another delay due to the illness of their chief strategist. Of note, that evening, a briefcase, tape recorder, cassettes, and binders that concerned the trial were stolen from the parked car of one of the defense attorneys. On March 27th of 1975, the jury, made up of five men and seven women, were officially seated. During their opening remarks, the prosecution stated that they had the 32 caliber handgun that was used in five of the alleged 20 murders, as well as stating that they also had a wedding ring that had been taken from Quita Haig, who, if you'll remember, is the first official victim of the zebra slayings. During his testimony, Harris, who, if you'll remember, had attempted to go back on his confession, stated, quote, Larry grabbed the woman by her hair and took a machete knife and took her 20 feet from the van. He raised it over his head and sliced down on her neck. He kept chopping, chopping. He came over to where I was standing and said, you should have seen the blood gush out of that devil's neck. Before going on to describe how Cooks had killed Quita's husband, he also told the jury how he had been with the assailants on January 28th when four individuals were murdered and six were shot. When questioned about the letters he had sent to the defense attorneys as well as his subsequent recantation of his confession, Harris stated that he had made all of it up because his wife was pressuring him Individuals also testified that they had sold the gun that had been used in the commission of the crimes to Thomas Maney, who was the manager of the Black Self-Help Slash Moving Company. If you'll remember, Maney was not prosecuted for anything. They also heard testimony from the three teenagers who had nearly been abducted on October 20th, and they were able to identify Cooks as the man who had attempted to abduct them. The trial lasted roughly a year. Obviously, 
all four men were found guilty of the crimes. Both Green and Cooks laughed out loud in the courtroom as they were sentenced, with Moore and Simon sitting there stoically showing no emotion at all. There are some who attempted to claim that the four men had been railroaded by the system and that there was no real evidence to implicate them, that it was in fact just an all-white police department and city trying to pin the crimes on four young black males who, while they had checkered pasts, were really attempting to turn their lives around and that they hadn't had anything to do with it. The reality is that these four individuals and possibly others were responsible for the crimes that they were convicted of. JCX Simon ended up dying on March 12, 2015 at the age of 69 at in his cell at San Quentin Prison. Moore died in 2017 at the age of 75 at the California Healthcare Facility, while Cooks passed away on June 30th, 2021 at the Richard J. Donovan Correctional Facility. Only Green remains incarcerated for this series of crimes. One quick little bit I'm going to touch on, and according to one inspector who investigated one of the early crimes, it's believed that the murders attributed to the Death Angels actually began earlier than 1973. Police suspect they had actually begun somewhere around 1969 or 1970, and that the actual number of victims that could be attributed to the Death Angels just in the state of California might reach upwards of 200 individuals. This is important to note as at the time of the arrest of the four men, the mayor of San Francisco put out a list of 57 victims that he believed the Death Angels were responsible for killing. As we know, only a handful of these crimes would ever officially be charged to the individuals responsible, but it does leave the question, were there other members of the Death Angels and did they get away with murder? My thought on the topic is that there more likely than not were more members of this organization. Those who were involved that admitted to their involvement in these crimes or at least to their involvement with this cult stated for years afterwards that it was not just a localized organization, that they were nationwide. And if we look at the period of time from roughly 1970 onward, there are innumerable attacks on white individuals by black assailants, be it by gun or machete, which were never solved, and which, if you look into these cases, do fit the modus operandi of the Death Angels. I honestly believe that with the arrest of these four individuals, the police 
as so often is the case with things of this nature, unless there's a further public outcry for them to do further investigation into these crimes, i.e. there is evidence that the crimes have not abated with the arrest of the suspects, they will just let sleeping dogs lie and move on to the next case as they don't want to further instill fear in the public or possibly give the convicted an avenue to appeal at, by stating that these crimes are still going on. What I mean by that is it would not be difficult for someone who has been convicted of one of these crimes to claim that, see, I told you I wasn't involved with this, even the police are stating the crimes are still going on, while here I sit rotting away in prison, unjustifiably incarcerated while someone else is committing the crimes, and that person who is out there doing these crimes is the one who is responsible for the crimes that you've convicted me of. We have reached the end of this week's episode. I hope you enjoyed my two-part dive into the California Death Angels. As always, if you like the show, please share it on social media, subscribe on your favorite podcast network, and leave a five-star review. And if you would like to help support the show, please consider becoming a Patreon over at tinyurl.com backslash dcpatreon. The Death Cast is a production of Corpse Creek Publishing. Until next time, stay morbid. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.